We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Welcome back, everybody, to the continuing of the Councils of the Church series with Dr. Alan Femister. Dr. Alan, thank you as always. Welcome back. Thank you. Now we're doing the Fifth Lateran Council, if I am correct. Correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so the Fifth Lateran Council is the 18th Ecumenical Council, so we're nearly, well, not nearly there, but we're, you know, we're in striking distance of the end. Um, uh, there's uh, 21 in total. So it's just Trent, Vatican one, Vatican two to go. Um, uh, Lateran five is a very strange council. So it's it's held between uh, 1512 and 1517. Seven months after it ended, Luther issued his uh, 95 theses and kicked off the Reformation. So so it's kind of um, it's kind of weird because it's just sort of. Yeah, it's just there on the edge of the precipice. Um, and um, and the weird thing about it is how sort of humdrum it is, in a way. I mean, it's just sort of like, yeah, okay, we're having a council, define a couple of things, do a few disciplinary stuff, nothing particularly interesting to see here. Folks, move a lot, boom. Um, <laughs> so so that, <laughs> that's the odd thing about it. You'd think that on the eve of this cataclysm, they'd be like, oh no, how do we reform the church? Everything's terrible, but no, apparently not. Um, and um, uh, so, We're having uh, s'mores in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so why is that? Well, so as we mentioned last time, the Council of Florence being such a huge success and, and Eugenius IV managing to get that nice little paragraph into uh, Letento Celi, the bull of reunion with the Greeks about the uh, divine institution of the papacy and its power to rule a church and teach and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he kind of defeated conciliarism by doing that. And, um, and he, um, uh, now when I say defeated conciliarism, it was still there, all this kind of toxic stuff um, uh, was kind of still floating around the, the, the kind of system in Christendom, but it had lost its teeth. The papacy had kind of got its act back together, got itself back on its feet, had a nice ecumenical council with a lovely declaration of papal authority under its belt. and. Um, so to some extent, a large extent, they could afford to ignore conciliarism. Now, the problem with that is that conciliarism was, you know, a problematic, false theological position, but it was, it was partly, uh, you know, in, in large part, an expression of frustration at the chaos and corruption and self-serving uh, behavior of the Roman Curia. Um, and uh, so, it, it may have caused all sorts of problems of, it, of its own, but it, 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 to some extent, helped to keep the cardinals and the popes honest. And so once it had been uh, smashed on the head pretty thoroughly by the Council of Florence, uh, that, that countervailing force to the sort of general bureaucratic tendency of corruption was, was gone. And, um, and then the other thing, of course, the Council of Florence was very much geared up towards ending the Great Schism to be followed by a great crusade that would rescue the Byzantines from the Turks, and then everyone and everything would live happily ever after and all that kind of stuff. And that didn't work. Um, there was a, a great crusade, but as we talked about last time, the Venetians reneged on their promise to stop the Turks moving their armies across into Europe. And so when the crusade arrived uh, in the bottom of the Balkans, it found there were far too many Turks on the other side and then there was a desperate battle of varna which could have just about been won if the, a few things had gone differently but they didn't and uh, the king of poland and hungary and the papal legate were both killed and the crusade faltered and failed and constantinople was captured by the turks 
And so that kind of, um, that, the fall of Constantinople cut off a sort of great psychological link between the ancient world and, and the, what was becoming the modern world. So that there had, there had been, the historian Macaulay famously points out that there were, there were basically three institutions that managed to stretch all the way through the Middle Ages from the ancient world. The papacy, the Republic of Venice, and the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire was destroyed at that point. And that's basically seen as the end of the Middle Ages. So in certain sense, it, it didn't have a chance of getting it to the modern world because its destruction defines the beginning of the modern world and the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and the Republic of Venice carried on until the French Revolution when it was destroyed by the French revolutionaries because um, it wasn't the kind of republic they wanted. So that was the end of that. Um, and um, uh, so the papacy, as Macaulay points out when he was writing, was the only institution that, that went all the way back from when when Christians were being eaten by lions in the Colosseum all the way through to Napoleon and uh, and steam engines. Um, uh, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, now, so of course this, um, uh, and another th another thing, which of course people didn't, you know, didn't realise until they lost it, was that the the credentials of the um, of the Holy Roman Emperors in the West as Roman Emperors were, um, you know, that they they had some sociological historical problems of continuity. You know, they were their main territory was in Germany, which famously wasn't part of the classical Roman Empire. And um, they didn't really rule Italy, although they did nominally rule Northern Italy, but as we've discussed on a number of occasions, they didn't really rule it. Um, and uh, so it, people weren't, it hadn't got to the stage in the 18th century yet where Voltaire famously said that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But, uh, but I mean, it was beginning to fray its plausibility, and somehow the, the loss of its main rival, you say, ah, oh, well, we may not be, you know, we may be a rather German and not be quite in the right place, but at least we don't speak Greek. Um, and, uh, you know, like, you know, so that the, in some ways, the continued existence of the Byzantine Empire threw into relief those respects in which the Holy Roman Empire did have a plausible claim to be Roman its Latinness and its Westernness and its greater connectedness with Rome, even if it didn't actually rule Rome itself. Um, and so once the Byzantine Empire was gone, the it somehow drew more attention to the the less plausible uh, characteristics of the of the Holy Roman Empire. But anyway, so um, so there's this sense of rupture is what I'm trying to say, a sense of, of a breaking off of continuity with the ancient world and um, and this uh, reinforced the pathological tendencies inherent in the Renaissance. So the Renaissance is, the term itself is an insult, as is, as by originally intended, the word Middle Ages is an insult. So, so the word Middle Ages implying but the, the, the dreadful bit between the wonderful classical bits and the wonderful Renaissance bits. And the Renaissance bit means the rebirth of the wonderful classical bit. So, so, so it's inherently problematic concept, right? Um, but whereas the popes in the 13th century when they, uh, when Aristotle was being, all these translations of Aristotle and Latin were being pumped into the West, were very nervous and cautious and put bans on the reading of Aristotle at universities and took a long time and it took St. Thomas's brilliance and genius in order to show that Aristotle could be domesticated and was in fact, you know, once properly understood, very helpful for the Christian faith and, and you know, a, a sort of model process of, of discernment between the the, the the pagan and unacceptable elements and the and the authentic and true elements of of something received from pagan antiquity in the form of Saint Thomas, for Aristotle to gain the the, the dominating position which he eventually does in Christian thought, um, but when it comes to the Renaissance, the popes show no analogous caution at all. It's kind of like paganardi, yippee, and uh, and and you know sort of you know oh wonderful pagan style Latin etc etc and and so they just throw themselves in with abandon and eventually uh, Rome sort of succeeds Florence as the center of the Renaissance. Um, uh, so, so it becomes not just of the popes not terribly cautious about, about the Renaissance as a movement, they actually become, it ends up the papal court becomes the center of the Renaissance. And um, now, now Pope Pius II uh, 
who was Pope from 1458 to 1464, uh, uh, who's a very amusing fellow. Um, he, uh, he wrote this wonderful, wonderful autobiography. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name was. Is it? Not what the actual Latin name of the autobiography is, but you can, um, uh, I think it's Harvard University Press, publish it in Latin and English in two volumes. So, and, and then there's a sort of um, airport novel, abridged version of the same translation called Diaries of a Renaissance Pope or Memoirs of a Renaissance Pope or something. Um, but it's, 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 it's well worth getting hold of it. It's really very funny book, but it's actually by, you know, Pius II himself. Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, and um, and he, he describes his career, and he's like all tied up with the Council of Basel, and and you know involved in the schism, and then he kind of repents and becomes a good boy and goes back to serving the papacy, and and eventually becomes pope, and he loves his hometown, and he sees everything through, and he's and there's, there's a hilarious story of his, his, he goes on a mission to Scotland, a diplomatic mission to Scotland, and he he gets shipwrecked and he injures his feet and. And I mean, it's particularly hilarious from my point of view because he, after after having a difficult time in Scotland, he decides he doesn't want to get back on a ship because that was too traumatic. But he, the English are, are opposed to whatever the whatever the secret purpose of his mission was. The English are opposed to it, so it's dangerous for him to go to England. That's why he went by ship. So he decides it was too dangerous to go by ship again. So he 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 decides to sneak back to England incognito. So he has to go through the incredibly dangerous border territory between England and Scotland, and he nearly gets killed in a series of raids. And various girls from my county in England try and seduce him during this raid. It's very funny. And he 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 apparently, anyway, according to his memoirs, he 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 um he refuses their advances. Um and uh, he doesn't get killed in the raid, and he feels that this was God's reward for his virtue in refusing the advances of these these females from my part of England. And then he reaches Newcastle, which is my hometown, and goes on about how absolutely wonderful it is compared to Scotland. So when I read that, I was in Aberdeen doing my PhD. I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was quoting it to everybody that I could. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, um, yes, total tangent, excuse me. But um, uh, Pius II was very concerned about the fall of Constantinople, extremely upset about it. In fact, at the conclave at which he was elected Pope, Bessarion, uh, if you remember the Bishop of Nicaea, who's one of the great unionists, the one, uh, yeah, it's one of the great unionists at the, at the Council of Florence, he's nearly elected Pope. He like loses by a few votes. Uh, the, uh, I mean, and, and Pius II explains this in his memoirs. He talks about how he's, Bassarion's really close. And then at the last minute, people start saying, you know, why should we elect a Greek? Oh, the Latin's not good enough. Uh, and he's got a beard as well. And, uh, and, um, and so, so in the end, they don't, he doesn't win papacy. But he got very close. And it'd be interesting to think what might have happened in, in history if, if, um, if Bassarion had ended up as the Pope. But there we are. He didn't. Uh, but Pius II went to great trouble to try and organise a crusade to save uh, Constantinople. And um, and he uh, he um, eventually, well, uh, the Duke of Burgundy, who was very, liked to see himself as very swashbuckling, and he founded the, um, the Duke of Burgundy actually was a, a sovereign ruler in his own right. He wasn't, he wasn't just a local aristocrat. He ruled basically the whole of what we now think of as the low countries, you know, the Belgium and the Netherlands and and he, um, he, uh, um, so very powerful, very rich, because that, that part of Europe was extremely rich, uh, complicated reasons due to the, the wool trade and various things, um, and um, a very vibrant culture. And he founded the Order of the Golden Fleece, which is a famous uh, secular order of knighthoods in Christendom, which still exists. The king of, this has two branches now, the king of Spain disposes of one of the Spanish branch of the Order of the Golden Fleece, because the well, for you know, reasons we may or may not go into, but um, and the head of the House of Habsburg, the chap who would be the Austrian Emperor, Archduke Karl, um, he disposes of the Austrian branch of the Order of the Golden Fleece. But anyway, Duke of Burgundy was a very swashbuckling character, and um, uh, and he pledged that if any other Christian prince was willing to go with him to liberate Constantinople on a crusade, he would also go. And um, I think that was a sneak 
he promised because I think he thought, well, I don't really want to go and none of them really want to go. So I can pretty much rely on the fact that no other Christian Christian prince will, but then it'll look like I really wanted to go, but no one will come with me. So what could I do? And, um, and, and, and Pius II is initially terribly pleased by this and then begins to suspect precisely what I just described and gets more and more frustrated. And eventually he says, right, well, I'm a bloody Christian prince. So I'm going to go on crusade in person. Ha! Duke of Burgundy, so there you are, called your bluff. So, uh, and it's very sad, the end of his memoirs, he he travels up to Northern Italy, I can't remember where it is, where he's supposed to rendezvous with the Duke of Burgundy, and he's all full of hope. And he's a very old man, he has to be carried in the litter because of his, his injury, and his feet froze or something during his shipwreck in Scotland or something terrible. Um, and he never completely recovers from that, so he has to be carried on a litter. But anyway, he's off to go and fight in crusade, and uh, but, but and, and he, ends, he ends his memoirs with him leaving. And he sort of dies of a broken heart because when he gets there, the Duke of Burgundy doesn't turn up. And uh, so the crusade never happens. Now, I mean, whether it would have succeeded or not is, is a very difficult question because, I mean, the Turks were pretty scary and they, they were at their sort of height in those days. And and, and who knows? Of course, Christendom was, was, was also, you know, in some ways, in material way, was about to have an explosion of power and, but, um, but whether they were really capable of facing the Turks or not at that point is, is, is not really. And somebody made a meme I saw, I need to send it to you, of uh, what would you do with a time machine? And they and the, the bottom of it has Rambo outside of Constantinople. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I must admit, I must confess I'm often not particularly associated with Rambo, but I have often had similar thoughts about machine guns and rocket launchers and coming to the aid of... Constantine the Eleventh, but uh, but um, uh, um, I probably have to get some of my in-laws to help me because I'm not sure my technical skills are quite what they would be. Uh, but um, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, Pi second, yes. So um, he, uh, it was. Um, so this is kind of a. It's a very sad moment. He dies shortly afterwards. Um, uh, as I say, the, the Turks were not actually, they didn't really get driven back properly until 1683 and the great victory of the King of Poland, Jan III Sobieski at the Battle of Vienna, second siege of Vienna. They were already going to get to Vienna and besiege it um, within a few years of, of Lateran V, in fact. Um, uh, so um, so that, that then kind of the sort of, that, that failure, in a way, ushers in a period of, of, of appalling decline. The, the papacy uh, declines morally to a point that it hadn't it hadn't reached uh, since the um, 10th century, when you had all those teenage popes committing adultery and murdering each other and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, it never gets, I suppose, quite as bad as the 11th century. But I mean, it, it's definitely knocking on the door of that that territory and you know you openly acknowledged illegitimate children popes reigning as sort of sybaritic princes and and concentrating their efforts on trying to get um dynastic marriages for their children rather than um you know and, and you know notoriously keeping mistresses and poisoning cardinals and lord knows what else i mean really really terrible stuff and um uh, and the worst example is is Pope Alexander VI, who was already a cardinal in the reign of Pius II, and Pius II has some sarcastic comments about him in his memoirs. Uh, and I think, that, I'm trying to remember, I think it might be when one of the brothers of the last Byzantine emperor brings the skull of St. Andrew, which had been rescued from, from the sack of Constantinople, he brings it to Rome, uh, and it's, it's received with Im immense... Uh, sort of splendor and, and 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 great processions and piety and stuff and and I think now I'm trying to remember I hope I've got this right but I, I'm trying to remember that I think this is at that point that that even um, uh, Cardinal Borgia who is going to move go on to be Alexander the Sixth is seen to be moved and to weep tears of repentance uh, at this moment uh, Bias the Second's like yeah, sort of uh, notes down that he saw this and it's like kind of yeah. Not sure that's going to last, but you know it's nice to see. Um, and uh, so you know, so it was it was uh, it was well known at the time. We we had the skull of Saint Andrew until the 20th century when it was given to the schismatic patriarch of Constantinople in an ecumenical gesture. 
which I was thinking is unbelievably insulting to the Byzantine Catholics, really. But anyway, um, but uh, um, there we are. Who am I to judge? So um, uh, um, the uh, um, so uh, uh, Cardinal Borgia becomes Pope. Uh, he's absolutely horrendous, um, uh, and uh, and you have an interesting moment. Um, uh, well, a very important moment in in the last decade of the fifteenth century, when this amazing Dominican preacher. Um, uh, Girolamo Savonarola. Um, uh, he 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 has all these visions, and he's he's quite an amazing figure. And it's it's hard to tell. It's hard to ever really be sure what to make of him, whether he's absolutely crazy and led astray by some evil spirit, or if he's like a volcano of sanctity that has just never been canonized because he's too problematic for the popes to deal with psychologically. But he his sermons are so. He's actually from. Um, Where's, where's he from again? From what same town is now? But anyway, um, uh, but he um, uh, is it Ferrara? Anyway, um, uh, he um, uh, he's so uh, he's so incredibly powerful in his, his preaching in Florence that uh, he basically takes over the city. He never rules the city. Never becomes a he never becomes a citizen of Florence. But but you know vast multitudes attend his sermons to the point where at one point he's preaching outside the cathedral in the main square in Florence because that's the only place big enough to have to to the inside the cathedral is too small and they actually have people standing at the top of the streets um, uh, sh listening to what he says and then shouting it down the streets radiating off from the cathedral square so that people can hear it all the way down the streets leading so it's, it must have been an amazing experience and um and florence was the center of 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 this kind of neo-pagan renaissance um culture and he completely transformed it i mean people were very sort of shocked at the time you know that this sort of um, amsterdam suddenly turned into you know uh, or san francisco was suddenly transformed into you know the uh, this this city monastery of of incredibly fanatical ascetic believers and um and uh, but he um and he had his um, uh, San Marco, his, his the Dominican friary there was was so observant. Um, it became the largest religious house in the world, or something. At some point, it was hundreds and hundreds of friars there, and they were all like the sons of the highest aristocracy of of the area. And, and so everyone was very shocked that they were going off to to um, to join this monastery. And he came into a very uh, sharp conflict with Alexander the Sixth. Partly because he he uh, led by his visions, he he um, he didn't want Florence. He, that, well, under his influence, Florence did not ally with. They kicked out the Medici family, who basically were, had been re reigning in Florence in a sort of Vladimir Putin kind of way, where you know there was technical democratic institutions of the Florentine Republic, but really it was just all all the Medici family ran everything, and. Um, and uh, and they were kicked out uh, under Savonarola's influence, and um, and then um, this amazing sort of godly republic of Florence came into existence, and and it wasn't allied with the Pope's political plans for Italy, and he got more and more annoyed, and eventually um, he excommunicated Savonarola, and Savonarola didn't recognize it because he said, you know, you, you know, you're utterly corrupt, you're doing this for obviously false reasons. And I don't understand the technicalities of when a when a just an unjust excommunication is or isn't valid and whether or not however bad a man Alexander VI was, he should have obeyed him or not. There's actually a treatise in the library of the seminary where I uh, work that, that a, about a big thick treatise written by a, a Dominican trying to explain why he wasn't really legally excommunicated but of course the Dominicans are a little bit biased but um and um but eventually um for complicated reasons were quite dramatic reasons but not sufficiently germane to life and vibe to go into um uh, he was uh, he was defeated captured and burnt at the st horribly tortured until he said that his revelations were false which he withdrew after they stopped torturing him but um and he wrote this uh, this famous meditation called um in Felix Ego, all about uh, his sorrow and misery about having um, having uh, you know lied to to end the torture, and then he was uh, burnt at the stake in the middle of the town square in Florence, the famous painting of it, um, and 
so so uh, it's often historians this isn't generally appreciated but it's often observed by historians that really there was a catholic ref people think there's the reformation and there's the counter-reformation and the catholic reformation is a term for another term for the counter-reformation but that's not really true there was the catholic reformation and then there was the protestant reformation and then there was the counter-reformation uh because in fact savonarola is very much the beginning of the great movement to try and end the horrible neo-pagan corruption in the church um and uh, but because it was snuffed out and crushed um it ended up taking disordered heretical forms so 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 you imagine it, in a way you know it's 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 sort of what would have happened if innocent III had had francis of assisi arrested and burnt at the stake instead of granting him approval for his rule you know um uh so um uh, yeah, he was a bad guy, um, Alexander VI, and uh, it sort of reached a pitch of scandal. And I apologise to Alexander VI because he founded Aberdeen University, so I should hold him in, in you know great pious veneration. And there is actually a um, there is actually a, a stained glass window of him, incredibly, um, in Aberdeen University. <laughs> and, uh, it's him handing the charter of the university to the, to the King of Scotland. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, I mean, it's uh, it's. Um, it's quite remarkable that there's a stained glass window somewhere about the of the sixth. I, I, I showed a picture of it to Father Benedict Grishel once, and he was absolutely speechless that, that somewhere in the world there was a stained glass window. I mean, he was shocked and then very amused, but initially really quite shocked when he saw it. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so um, uh, he died. There are amusing accounts of how he died that may be apocryphal um uh, about him act, trying to poison a cardinal and accidentally drinking the wrong glass of wine and <laughs> that's how he died but i don't know if, i'm not sure how apocryphal that is inconceivable anyway, he... <laughs> <laughs> and um uh and he um uh, his Ill illegitimate son uh cesara borgia he, he tried to sort of hack out huge chunk of the papal states and turn it into a great duchy for his son in fact his son had been a cardinal but then he said actually i'm going to just steal a chunk of the papal states and 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 uh, and give it to you as a duke so renounce your orders and your cardinal's robes and we'll make you a duke instead you know i mean it was i mean this is you know bad scandalous um and uh, um and uh, so um there's a very brief reign of another pope who dies shortly afterwards um and then uh pope julius ii um becomes pope now as you who uh, uh, reigns from 1503 to 1513 now as you may have picked up a lot of what these popes in this period are really interested in is italian power politics and they're not you know that into the religious stuff and um uh, i mean of course they, they appreciate that's part of their job and that's where their position comes from but but they're very preoccupied with having a glorious renaissance court and uh, and getting what they want to happen to happen in italy and um uh julius ii um uh, you know we mentioned ages back that lots of the popes in the 11th century and the early 12th century are the second because they they wanted to show their zeal for reform by naming themselves after early saintly popes from the early church well this is not the case with julius the second uh, Julius Saint Julius the first was a great guy and a great opponent of Arianism and according to the legend he's the one that uh, Athanasius wrote the Athanasian creed for to show he would show that the soundness of his belief um but um uh Julius II named himself Julius after Julius Caesar not after Julius the first and uh, and he was he was a very he was, in fact, Machiavelli, who was around at the time, he was, a, he was a politician and a diplomat for the Republic of Florence. Machiavelli presents um, Julius II as like the ideal, his idea of a prince. Um, uh, so you like kind of great, what a wonderful compliment. Um, and uh, um, so, uh, and he was, yeah, he was, so he, uh, the germane things for, for, the, for Lateral Five are that he, he, um, uh, at the beginning of his pontificate, he uh, large chunks of the papal states had been stolen by Venice, and, uh, and Julius II was determined to get them back. And uh, he organizes a league of European powers irritated with the power of the Republic of Venice, and he gets them all together to um, uh, to uh, kick the Venetians out of uh, various parts of Italy, 
um, including large chunks of the papal states, which Julius II gets back for himself. And he, uh, he drives the Borgia family out of the papal states, takes back that duchy of Cesare Borgia that had been created for him by his dad. And, um, uh, and he loathed Alexander VI. Um, and, um, uh, and, he, um, uh, and he centralizes the papal states. He's the one who founds the Swiss Guards. And, um, and he's the famous patron of Michelangelo. And uh, so, you know, he's, he, uh, but then he, um, and in fact, just to show you the, his kind of sort of zeal and, and, um, and self-belief and uh, he, he demolished St. Peter's Basilica. So basically, uh, St. Peter's Basilica was in a terrible state. This has been built by Constantine, but of course it was very old and it had been horribly neglected during the Avignon papacy, the minority there. And then the, after the Avignon papacy, the Roman popes were preoccupied with defeating the Avignon and the Pisan popes. So, so it had been really not properly looked after for a very long time and it was in a really bad way. And various popes have been desperately trying to prop it up. And, um, but uh, this kind of weird neo-pagan self-confidence and this is part of the problem. You see, these popes were not um, were not consumed with guilt about their dodgy pagan lifestyles. They were kind of like, yeah, well, you know, obviously I should probably go to confession before I die. But um, but I mean, it's uh, so um, um, you know. And there's a famous painting by Raphael of 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 of, of Judas II at prayer, which includes a, a picture of his illegitimate daughter. Um, you know, on the other side of the of the of the painting, and so I mean, yeah, they they weren't um, who who was married off to an important princely family, and and it was a very powerful woman in Italy, and you know, it was just all seen as much too normal, and this is part of the problem of what I was talking about about the the conciliarism having been taken away as a real danger, and therefore therefore that they didn't there was nothing to frighten them back into behaving properly again and um but he but there is this there's great self-confidence about this so he he decides well you know I, i'm a great man a great pope i'm conquering these these areas you know i'm a great patron of the arts renaissance is now centered on rome um so he 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 wants to build the greatest church in christendom so he decides to knock down saint peter's basilica and um and build the largest church in the world to replace it and he gets michelangelo to design it so the St. Peter's Basilica that's there now is, is uh, if you looked, if you saw a model of, of the one Michelangelo designed, you'd kind of realise it was the same church, but but it, it's undergone a number of significant changes uh, in the course of it. It took, you know, 100 years plus to construct, um, but it was, um, uh, and, it, and it was modified in the course of that time. Um, it was originally designed to be a Greek cross, so with, with arms equal length, which would have made and it would have, and it was designed to have a pantheon style domes that would have been more hemispherical um uh, so it would have been uh yeah it would have been more perfect as a church though perhaps in some ways more more pagan perhaps as a church um in the end they extended the nave during the counter-reformation because that it became very in to have large naves so that you could pump in the of the punters to listen to sermons, you know, about Catholic doctrine, because they finally realised with, you know, half of Christendom in flames, gosh, perhaps we ought to explain the faith to people in case they decide to become Protestants. Um, uh, so, so, the, so, so the nave got extended. So as a result, the sort of slightly weird egg-shaped dome of St. Peter's as it is now is built instead. So because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see it in St. Peter's Square because the, the, the longer nave would, would have eclipsed it. And as it is, I'd, um, I, 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 have you been to St. Peter's? Yeah, never been there have been uh never been Italy. never they've been across the pond you're, you're like maximus in in uh in in, in gladiator yes yeah. never been the rome i know the idea of rome yes um if you're in st peter's square you can see the dome but the dome is in fact foreshortened because of the nave you can't so you can only see its real shape and size from the river basically and then as you go up towards st peter's the the facade begins to rise up so you can still see a lot of it um probably it looks a bit more like the hemispherical dome that would you would have seen uh, if michelangelo's version had been built by the time you get to because it's because of the naming so um it took a long time very expensive extremely large largest church in the world at least for a very long time i think some crazy dictator in africa built a, a replica of it that's bigger somewhere in africa like in, in the 20th century like out of concrete 
I'm not sure. I think it was the dictator of the Central African Republic who had himself crowned in a in a reenactment of Napoleon's coronation. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I think that's why I might be getting this wrong. But anyway, um, but anyway uh, uh, it, it it was the largest church in the world, and you know, except for those people who take their holidays in the Central African Republic, in many ways remains effectively the largest church in the world. Um, uh, um, anyway, so he. Um, uh he knocked it down obviously he needs a lot of money in order to build uh it's incredible because chris shows incredible chutzpah for him to knock it down um uh and he um he need he needed uh, a lot of money to rebuild it so he came up with the idea what well, he thinks well it's a very pious purpose to be rebuilt st peter's basilica therefore it's the sort of act donating large sums of money to the rebuilding of st peter's for which one might receive an indulgence so he comes up with this idea of issuing indulgences in exchange for monetary donations um, for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. This was a bad idea, and very bad things are going to come of this, but that's for next time, folks. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, so um, uh, anyway, so uh, now, uh, after organising this alliance to get the Venetians out of Italy, um, Julius II decides to switch sides. Um, and uh, so apparently he was a proto-Italian nationalist, very sort of moved by a Renaissance view of the world. And according to this Renaissance view of the world, the Italians were the civilized Romans and the, the people beyond the Alps were the barbarians. So he gets this idea that, that the, so that there, there was a heavy influence of, uh, of, of, of non-Italian powers in the Italian peninsula at this time. The French have been fighting for a very long time to try and get control of Northern Italy at this point. And, uh, and a lot of that was, was bound up with, with Savonarola's falling out with Alexander VI because uh, Savonarola sided with the French in the hope that they would uh, frighten the, 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 the Roman Curia into reforming itself. Um, the, uh, the, the emperors, uh, who by now, the, the imperial title is now back in the Habsburg family, uh, has been uh, since just before the fall of Constantinople, um, and uh, the uh, the emperor elect, the king of of the Romans or the king of Germany is is Maximilian, uh, the emperor Maximilian at this point, and they have the traditional desire of the emperors to come down to well the traditional a right to rule Italy the emperors nominally have, and b their desire to fight their way down to Rome and get crowned emperor, so they always have an interest in interfering in Italian affairs. Um, interfering, if you think in nationalist terms, I suppose. Um, and uh, the um, the kings of Aragon and the throne of Aragon has now been united with the throne of Castile because of the marriage of Isabella la Católica, um, the greatest queen in Christian history, probably, um, uh, to uh, Ferdinand of, of Aragon, has united uh, two of the three great kingdoms of Hispania, into what becomes the Kingdom of Spain, um, and uh, an and Aragon controlled um, uh, uh, basically pretty much all of southern Italy eventually. Um, and so, so they're all kind of all three of those powers are very interested in in control over Italy. And um, whereas Julius II is like, no, you know, I'm going to dominate Italy. It's a bit like you know Boniface VIII. You know, we talked about he was saying, I am the emperor, I am Caesar. So he's kind of like, you know, he, so he calls on the Italians to drive the barbarians out of Italy. And by that, he doesn't like the Spanish, especially because the Borgias were Spanish and he hates them. Um, but um, but he um, but he he particularly sees the French and the Germans as barbarians. So he's keen to push them out. The Habsburgs are never that militarily powerful, at least up until the successor of Maximilian, Charles V. Um, uh, but the um, uh, in fact, there's a famous saying of the Habsburgs, um, uh, Ali bella gerund tu felix Austria nuba, let others make war, you happy Austria marry, because the, the Austrians got control of vast areas of, of, of the world, eventually just by making incredibly clever marriage alliances. And, um, and Maximilian is just on the edge of that. It's just all about to click into place. Um, he, he marries the... Um, Right. He marries the heiress to the Duchy of Burgundy, and um, and his son uh, marries the heiress to the Kingdom of Spain. So they end up controlling the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, nominal uh, suzerainty over Germany, control over Austria and the surrounding lands, and then Spain, and then all of Spain's colonies, which obviously include vast chunks of the of the New World. Um, so, but that's not quite all clicked into place at this point. Maximilian is moving the last few pieces on the marital chessboard, but he hasn't quite got there. 
Anyway, so um, so Julius II, so, so the main opponent at this point, because Maximilian and the Habsburgs haven't quite got to this position, the main opponent to papal domination of Italy and the expulsion of the barbarians uh, from Italy is uh, the French. And um, so, so they're the ones who are most annoyed at the volte face of Julius II. So once he's got what he wants out of the Venetians in alliance with the uh, um, the transalpine powers he uh, he then um, he then switches sides and tries to get all the Italian uh, powers together to ally against external influence in the Italian peninsula and um, uh, and the king of France Louis XII is very very annoyed about this so um, now which brings us back to conciliarism so although conciliarism is a kind of a, a wounded beast staggering to its death over the course of the second half of the 15th century and the beginning of the 16th century, it's still, you know, got enough life in it to do some nasty harm, you know, sort of a final kind of rip out your guts before it dies sort of thing. So the popes are not unconcerned about conciliarism. They sufficiently think they've got it under control to get back to leading their dodgy lifestyles and ignoring their Christian duties, but they're, they're not totally... Um, indifferent to it, they're aware that it could it could still do a lot of harm, and um, so and one of the consequences of this is that the various um, uh, temporal powers keep conciliarism in their back pocket as a kind of means of threatening the Pope. So when they're not getting what they want, they're like, mm, perhaps we should have an ecumenical council, Your Holiness, um, and, uh, and the popes are always desperate to avoid this happening, um, and. Um, uh, not long after the um, uh, the original uh, debacle over um, uh, Basel and everything, the um, uh, uh, the kings of France had introduced this thing called the Pragmatic Sanction of Bourges, which had taken some of the enactments of the Pseudo Council of Basel and made them into local French ecclesiastical law um, in a way that was, you know, unorthodox um, and uh, offensive to the papal prerogatives. And, uh, and this is a running sore, and Pius II puts a lot of effort in trying to get the French kings to withdraw it. And the French kings kind of promise to withdraw it and kind of semi-withdraw it. But basically, they're using it as a tool in order to put pressure on the popes when, when they need to. Um, and uh, so, um, but Julius II is not the kind of person who, who can be pressured by those kind of methods. So, the, so Louis XII feels he has to go a bit beyond that. And he knows that he's got Maximilian on his side because Maximilian is also annoyed about this Italian, proto-Italian nationalist uh, manoeuvre that Julius II is getting up to. So uh, Maximilian and um, uh, Maximilian and uh, Louis XII uh, conspire together to summon an ecumenical council independent of the Pope. Now, when Julius II was elected in 1503, he swore an oath that he would bring about a crusade to, to um, uh, get rid of the Turks and that he would call an ecumenical council to bring about the reform of the church because the popes may have been relatively indifferent to the staggering corruption of the ecclesiastical environment at the time, but everybody else wasn't indifferent. Um, and uh, so, but he hadn't done really anything about this so far. So the... Um, so Louis XII is like, well, you know, it's supposed to be an ecumenical council, and according to uh, Basel and Constance, but of course we're talking about the illegitimate sessions of Basel and Constance, but that's still uh, a contested point at this point. Um, there should have been loads of ecumenical councils by now, because they were supposed to happen every 10 years. So the Pope swore an oath to summon one, he's not doing it. So, um, so uh, and I mean, even Savonarola, even though he was a Thomist and wasn't into um, uh, dodgy conciliarist theories, he, th he thought that... Um, uh, he thought that that uh, Julius II's neo-pagan, sorry, Julius II. I mean, Alexander VI's neo-paganism was was sufficiently apparent that he counted as a heretic, and therefore that the greatest temporal rulers in Christendom and the, the emperor would have the authority to materially convene an ecumenical council to to assess whether or not he was uh, truly of the faith. Um, uh, so I mean, you know, this was people were desperate enough that even people who weren't conciliarists were coming up with arguments which may or may not be cogent as to how you might summon an ecumenical council to deal with at least a heretical pope. But obviously, uh, Louis XII is pushing a more conciliarist line whereby you could auto-summon an ecumenical council even just to deal with um, uh, deal with the unreformedness of the, of the Roman Curia. Of course, I, one strongly suspects that Louis XII didn't care less about the unreformedness of the Roman Curia. All he was really interested 
Zidane is, is, is irritating Julius II and, and, and reining in his frustration of his Italian plans. Um, but nonetheless, he summons a synod uh, in, uh, in Orléans um, uh, in order to... Um, well, he summons it to Orléans, I think, but it meets at Tours um, uh, in September 1510 uh, in order to um, summon illegally uh, an ecumenical council to meet at Pisa, which, and so this pseudo council meets at Pisa in 1511 with the collaboration of the of Maximilian. So it's a real threat to the papacy. And there's also um, factions in the Sacred College who um, of cardinals who are hostile to Julius II, a big personality, um, uh, um, and, they, and they're willing to collaborate with the King of France and the Emperor to bring about this, uh, this non-papal council. Uh, so, so really as a serious threat to Julius II. So he decides that he's going to have to call an ecumenical council in order to call their bluff. So he's trying to, he's basically trying to redo roughly the maneuver that the Pope's pulled with the Council of Florence, in, in which undercut the Council of Basel. So he's like, you know, um, uh, worked once, it can work twice. So, so he, so, I mean, of course, in the case of the Council of, of Basel, he, you know, there were better reasons. It was to, to try and achieve reunion with the Greeks as well. And, and a lot of the bishops from Basel really did move to Ferrara and then Florence. Whereas in this case, Lateran V is summoned just in direct opposition to this um, pseudo council at Pisa. Um, uh, so there we are. So it's not summoned for the most edifying of reasons. Um, and uh, it has, it's almost all Italian bishops, but there's about a hundred of them. Um, and again, it, you know, if the Pope says it's an ecumenical council, and if any bishop who turned up would have been let in, then it's an ecumenical council. So, um, uh, so uh, it's held in the Lateran Basilica. Obviously, they they never have held a council in St Peter's at this point, but they couldn't anyway now because it's part of rubble. Um, and uh, so, um, so um, yeah, so they they hold the council in in the Lateran Basilica, and they obviously denounce the Council of Pisa. Um, uh, the um, and eventually uh, it does enough and and acts conciliarly enough and is plausible enough that in the end the um, the uh, French and French king and the, the the emperor give up and and uh, decide and abandon their pseudo council which was main was Julius II's main objective and um, eventually uh, Julius II dies during the council um, and is succeeded by Leo the who's a Medici. Uh, he's not not quite the kind of um, heroic, sort of uh, terrifying, driven figure that his predecessor was, but he's also not a great reformer to inspire us all. Um, and um, uh, and it, it's it's Leo the Tenth who concludes the council, and it under under whose pontificate uh, the Reformation breaks out. So Leo the Tenth dies in in fifteen twenty one. Um, uh, and, and he also concludes a deal, with, and, and, and by this time, uh, Louis XII has died as well, and he, he's succeeded by uh, Francis I of France, uh, who, who strikes a deal with um, uh, Leo X, uh, which is ratified by, um, uh, ratified by the Council, Fifth Lateran Council to set aside the pragmatic sanction of Bourges, once and for all, in exchange for the Concordat of Bologna, which essentially gives the French kings the power to more or less rule over the French church as, as they like. Um, and there's a lot of this goes on. So, so by, the, by, by a few decades into the 16th century, the popes have essentially hived off the real power to control the church in Spain and its dominions and in Portugal and in England. Of course, in England, eventually, um, it, it, there's this schism uh, of Henry VIII occurs anyway. So, <laughs> excuse me. Hope you didn't all get COVID. Um, uh, so the um, <laughs> the uh, yeah. So he um, uh, so so they've hived off uh, real authority over the church. These temporal rulers all over the place, um, but um, and 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 in in exchange for for avoiding conciliarist or later Protestant threats of schism. Uh, and that's what the Concordat of Bologna essentially is, but it leads to the setting aside of the pragmatic sanction of Bourges, which is much more offensive to the Pope's because it actually contains ideological conciliarist statements rather than just nationalist canonical provisions as the Concordat of Bologna does. Um, uh, the, there are two um, important questions um, 
which the um, uh, which are considered uh, a theoretical question which is considered by the Fifth Lateran Council. One is um, the mountains of piety. The mountains of piety were sort of credit unions or pawn shops, um, P-A-W-N, um, uh, which um, uh, which were designed to help out uh, pe very poor people who needed loans, um, but uh, and in order to avoid them falling into the hands of uh, usurers. Uh, uh, various mendicant orders, particularly Franciscans, have created these things called mountains of piety, where basically people contributed capital, uh, and then you could borrow money in exchange for kind of weaving an item which you could redeem if you got. So it was, it's not usury, um, but some uh, in the late Middle Ages there was a lot of confusion beginning to develop as to what did and didn't constitute usury. Partly this is because of of the reign of nominalism in half of the European universities. Uh, nominalist metaphysics uh, basically messes up the the coherence of the account of what is and isn't a just price and 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 it because because usury in the end if you're trying to explain why usury is wrong you get down to the fact that it's 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 inventing non-existent value but if you're a nominalist and you think that there's no real value to anything anyway we just attribute value to it then what's the problem with inventing non-existent value all all value is invented non-existent value. so so plus the financiers of italy and elsewhere had invented elaborate ways of concealing the usurious nature of loans and stuff um uh, and so so there's a lot of controversy as to what was and wasn't usury um uh, in this period and uh, some of the religious orders again these questions of theological and philosophical questions becoming confused because of the rivalry between different religious orders rather than because there's a genuine problem uh, it's very irritating uh, and so 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 some of the rivals to the franciscans have been like you know the franciscan usurers supposed lovers of poverty uh, so so the question of whether or not uh, the franciscans uh, and others who created these mountains of piety were secretly practicing usury was a was an important one and it gets resolved in favor of the mountains of piety at the um at the fifth lateran council and i think uh, there's still a really big bank in italy i think it's been in, it was in trouble recently there's a big bank in italy which is called mountain of piety of uh or something something like that i remember seeing the cash machines for it um yeah, around italy but anyway uh, I can't. I can't remember the name of it. So, um, but but it's it, it, it derived ultimately, from, and no doubt it's entirely usurious nowadays. But it's derived ultimately from these mountains of piety, which were attempts to find ways of providing credit without practicing usury for people who needed it in order to keep them out of the clutches of usurers. So, in the history of the doctrine of usury, that's a very important document because the the earlier conciliar declarations against usury are usually quite perfunctory and often disciplinary with only implicit doctrinal statements. As we mentioned beforehand, the Council of Vienne gives a straight out doctrinal definition that anyone who says that usury isn't, isn't, a, isn't a mortal sin is a heretic, um, uh, but it, it doesn't go into detail. So, so by implication, the, the stuff about why mountains of piety aren't usurious is significant for understanding the true doctrine of the church by usury. Uh, as it happens, we'll never get to this anywhere else because it's it's not to do with the council but but there's an encyclical of pope um benedict the 14th in the middle i think in 1745 uh it called vix pervenit in which he goes into a lot of detail as to what is and isn't usury and that's really the the most important magisterial document at the time it was addressed only to italy and the surrounding islands but it was later readdressed by decree of the Holy Office in the 19th century to the entire church. So it has a, an important um, character, a high doctrinal theological note. Um, so if you're worried about what is and isn't usury, you might, you could, you can give yourself a headache by reading about the mountains of piety, and then you can try and get rid of the headache by reading Vix Pervenit. Um, and, uh, but you, yeah, there's a problem with yeah, the modern, the general translations of Vix Pervena around don't distinguish between, there's, there's, a, there's this word mutuum, which means a certain type of loan. Anyway, it would take too long to explain. Google it. Right, so, um, uh, or read the chapter of, 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 of um, me and Father Thomas's book on usury. Uh, not on usury, on uh, economics, but it, we talk about usury there. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, um, 
Uh, so that's that's the one big doctrinal thing that it deals with. The other one is uh, the soul. So there was this um, uh, dodgy uh, philosopher um, uh, in Italy at the time who'd been originally trained as a physician called Pietro Pomponazzi. Yeah, just have to check that. Um, uh, Pietro Pomponazzi, and he had this um, theory. He was influenced by the Latin avarists. Um, Averroes was a famous Islamic Aristotelian philosopher, and uh, he had had a big influence over um, Latin uh, intellectual culture in the 13th century, um, and uh, his followers were big opponents of St. Thomas Aquinas, and uh, they come to various conclusions which are incompatible with Catholic doctrine, and um, uh, their explanation as to why that was okay was this theory of the double truth, which is fairly or unfairly attributed to Seizure of Brabant, um, uh, and he basically, or he or is supposed to have held that things could be true in philosophy uh, and false in theology. So it's okay to say that it could be that something could be proven in um, theology, but not proven in philosophy. So, for example, St. Thomas said that, um, uh, that the uh, eternity of the world could not be disproven by reason alone. So you couldn't prove by reason alone that the world hadn't always existed. He said because God could, because God's outside time, he could create a world that had a, 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 an unending past history. Um, uh, it, he, just, he just hasn't, as it happens, done so. But we know that from divine revelation. Um, so he says you can prove that God is the creator of the world in the sense that, that the world couldn't exist without... Um, a self-existent, infinitely powerful mind, uh, having brought it into existence, but but that uh, that that self-existent, infinitely powerful mind could have brought it into existence as with an infinite future and past. He doesn't have to have brought it into existence at, with a, with a finite beginning. Uh, so that that kind of just, so some people don't agree with that. Um, various Franciscan thinkers have claimed to be able to prove that the that you can prove that there's a finite past history of the world by a natural reason, but whatever. Um, obviously, they must be wrong because Thomas disagrees with them, and he's only allowed to be wrong about one thing. Um, and so, but the um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, uh, that's not a problem. Uh, that kind of distinction isn't a problem. Uh, the problem with the the avarists, the double truthers, and apparently with this Pietro Pomponazzi guy, is that he held that um, you could prove. That the soul was mortal by natural reason it's just that it isn't and we know that by revelation right so 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 you know personally opposed to the mortality of the soul but 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 uh you know but as a as a as a as a philosopher he backs the mortality of the soul you know it's the kind of you know nancy pelosi i she personally opposed to abortion or she's just keen on abortion all around i don't know um but um uh, but the um but uh yeah so um he um uh he uh, so that the so Lateran five condemns this position. Now the condemnation. There's some dispute among uh, philosophers about this um, and historians because um, the condemnation isn't as clear as, as it might be. It basically condemns anyone who suggests that there's any doubt concerning. Let's see if I can find the text. Um, where are we? Uh, uh, with the approval of the sacred council, we condemn and reject all those who insist that the intellectual soul is mortal, or it is only one among all human beings, and those who suggest doubts on this topic. For the soul not only truly exists of itself and essentially is the form of the human body, as is said in the canon of our predecessor of happy memory, apparently Pope Clement V, promulgated in the General Council of Vienne, but is also mortal and further for the enormous number of bodies into which it is infused individually, it ought to be and is multiplied. Um, uh, so the question is, and then it gives some quotes from the gospel where he says, like, they cannot kill the soul and whoever hates the life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, so the, so, so the, it's the suggests doubts on this topic is, is the bit which is by many authors taken to mean doubts in natural reason. You see what I mean? So, so some people interpret, and this is definitely uh, taught authentically. So, in, for example, in, in the encyclical Humanum Genus against Freemasonry of Leo XIII, he uh, teaches that, that you can know by natural reason the immortality of the soul. Um, but the question of whether or not that was what Lateran V meant where in this condemnation to say that it, that you to suggest doubts is to say that that it could be not certain by natural reason. 
Uh, if you interpret it that way, then it's a solemn definition that the soul can be known by natural reason to be immortal. But um, if it's just a definition, uh, but I mean, the counter argument is that that's not very clear. You would have thought they might have been a bit clearer than that, if that's what they were trying to say, um, which is a good point. But on the other hand, what on earth are they bothering defining it for then otherwise? Because nobody was actually claiming theologically that the soul was mortal. Even this guy was not saying that um, the soul is actually mortal. He just had a dodgy theory of the double truth. So I don't know. It seems to me that it's more likely that it is saying that it's certain by natural reason, and it certainly is certain by natural reason. But there we are. So um, uh, two more interesting things. Um, uh, there was a um, uh, a um, uh, one of the attendees at the council, the fifth Lateran council, was um, Alessandro Geraldini, who you may not have heard of, but you should have done, because he is the first ever bishop of Santo Domingo in uh, the Dominican Republic, which is the first diocese ever created in the Americas. And, uh, and he was made the archbishop of it, and he was the first one. And to this day, which you may not know, and you should do, uh, the Archbishop of Santo Domingo is the primate of the Americas, bet you didn't know that, um, uh, for that reason. And, um, and he's an interesting fellow, he attended, the, so he'd been made um, the, the Archbishop, and he, he actually, you know, he, he was no slouch, he left, uh, he sailed off to uh, um, Hispaniola to take up his see, and, um, uh, but before he did so, he popped to, over to the Fifth Lateran Councils, that was his kind of, um, my great uncle, uh, emigrated to Canada years ago, and he, he went to the last night of the promenade concerts before leaving in order to, uh, so the apparently the equivalent um, uh, goodbye party for an archbishop of the Americas is to go to an ecumenical council and then you wave goodbye and bam, bam, off the ship goes. Um, and uh, so the, um, uh, yeah, so, um, so he's quite an important fellow, and it's quite amusing that he was the first American bishop to be present at an ecumenical council. Um, and uh, and he, he was also the, um, he was actually Italian, um, uh, and he, he, but he moved early in life to Spain, where he pursued his clerical career, and ended up as the tutor of um, uh, these daughters of the um, king of king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella. And he then went with their second oldest daughter, Catherine of Aragon, to England as her chaplain when she became Queen of England, um, which, as we all know, ended very tragically. Um, but we'll get to that uh, some other time. Um, and uh, but but he didn't stay there that long, and he, he went off again, and eventually, as I say, became the first Bishop of the Americas. Um, so well, there was uh, the, the there had already been a um, a bishop who had exercised jurisdiction over the Americas um, because when the uh, Icelandic Vikings discovered Newfoundland and possibly Maine even. I mean, there's, there's disputes as to how far south they got. Um, but uh, um, uh, there was some sort of desultory attempt to send uh, a pre at least one priest there. I don't think it worked out very well. But the, but the, um, uh, and, and I think he was subject to the Archbishop of Trondheim. Uh, I apologize if it was another Norwegian bishop and I've, I've defrauded him of his prerogative. But so, so if, if, if I remember correctly, the Archbishop of Trondheim is the first bishop to actually exercise jurisdiction over the Americas. But the first bishop to actually be in the Americas um, was the, and, and to have his seat in the New World was the first bishop of Santo Domingo. So there we are. And, um, uh, and um, uh, one other interesting factor, which is only indirectly related to Lateran V, but in order to keep probably, I think that's probably his motivation, in order to, in order to dissuade future emperors from interference in Italy, um, uh, the um, uh, Julius II, in what I think was a very short-sighted move, but there we are, um, uh, granted the uh, Maximilian the right to call himself just in virtue of his election in Germany, Imperator Romanorum Electus, right? So, so, um, so it's not quite Emperor of the Romans, but I mean, they didn't, from that point onwards, they became much less bothered 
about getting crowned by the Pope. And in fact, only his grandson ever again gets crowned by the Pope. So, so uh, in fact, only one more, after that, that silly concession was made by Julius II, only one more emperor-elect ever gets crowned by the Pope. Because from that point onwards, they can put on their coins, Imperator Romanor Electus et Semper Augustus, and then that's fine by them. Um, <laughs> so, what is grievous in it has to be Rex Romanorum or Rex, Rex Germanorum or whatever it is, and that just doesn't sound as good. Huh. So, um, so, so yeah, he's, he sold, he sold a big concession to Maximilian, but I think that's basically because he was an Italian nationalist and he wanted to keep these horrible Germans out of Germany, out of Italy, and help the Pope to dominate the peninsula. And although they never do dominate the whole of the peninsula, although um, uh, Julius II had himself celebrated as the as the liberator of Italy, um, uh, they never uh, the, the the papal state that survives until the French Revolution is essentially the state buttressed and, and fortified and, and centralized by Julius II. Um, so there we are. So they think, uh, they get to the end of Lateran V, they think mission accomplished. We've made a few vague comments of a reforming nature, which we have no intention of following up. We've done a couple of, 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 of interesting doctrinal things. Um, we've uh, deflated the pseudo Council of Pisa, staved off another dangerous conciliarist outburst. We can sit back, relax, drink a nice glass of Chianti, and uh, and and ring up a few mistresses. And uh, um, but in fact, seven months later, um, for thanks to one slightly bonkers um, uh, German academic friar, uh, um, uh, it's all going to go horribly, horribly wrong. Danger, danger, Will Warmson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There we are. Back from fun. Doctor, appreciate it as always, and yeah, we look forward to dun 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 dun, Trent. 